Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I am on cloud nine. I just finally got to connect with David. He is, among other things, the executive director for the Department of Transportation Disadvantaged. He has an amazing uh, career in uh, Tallahassee. He worked for Governor Rick Scott's administration in the Health and Human Services. He was the executive director for the Commission on Jobs for Persons with Disabilities, a major initiative to help close the uh, gap, the inequities with employment rates with people with disabilities compared to without disabilities. Those are some really high-level leadership-involved areas. Of course, employment, people with disabilities, transportation, people with disabilities, these are pillar topics to independent living, and he's got some of the highest-level directorship experiences in it. And so, of course, I wanted to connect with him. Our friend Jane Johnson, friends of the podcast, put us two together. And it's been a you know a little bit trying to get on the same page. He's very busy as far as the time, and it is well worth the wait. Now, we do talk about his experiences in each of those areas, but of course, um, we had to talk about some of the things that really were uh, connecting with me. Uh, he and I both share a similar disabilities. We're both low vision. It sounds like uh, we we had similar experiences through the education system, similar experiences in having very supportive parents to help navigate us uh, through some of the challenges and growing up with uh, vision disabilities. But what I just really enjoy talking to him about was, of course, uh, his thoughts and perspectives and philosophy on life, the importance of being adaptable, the importance of um, not just buying into the identity that society hands us on what a person with a disability cannot or is capable of doing, the importance of uh, making sure that we're resilient and uh, using stubbornness <laughs> as an asset versus a liability. I really enjoyed uh, hearing that because I think we had a shared experience of that. Not being a victim, uh, not being stuck, evolving, growing, uh, being the best version of ourselves possible. Those meaty things that I, I love talking about he just gave some really re rich and deep explanations of that. And of course, we got into leadership and his perspectives on leadership being that, you know, it's not just a position of authority, that it takes a team, that we got to be resilient uh, in, in terms of the inevitable uh, clashes that are, are uh, going to happen along the way, taking extreme ownership of the decisions we make or situations that we find ourselves in. And he gave an awesome answer to what the independent life means to him. I want to spoil it, but I won't. So without further ado, we give you David. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I'm very excited about today's guest. I'm with uh, David Durham. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes. All right. Uh, thank you. You and I have been, uh, you know, trying to get our orbits to connect for a little while, and it, it just feels really good to finally be on the same page with you. You have a phenomenal track record for work that we'll get into, and just very excited to have you here, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, for inviting me, and I'm excited to be here as well. Well, I think a good place to, to start, it would be, uh, you know, feel free to jump into how disability has impacted your life. 
Sure. Um, so I, to kind of give you as a personal context, um, I was born with visual disability. Um, it's called my macular hypoplasia, which is basically a, um, uh, a birth defect, uh, congenital birth defect uh, that prevents me from being able to see about three feet distance and um, reading uh, small print. So I have to use, um, you know, ad adapt uh, to, to this disability by using magnification, uh, large print, uh, sometimes extra time. Uh, but in essence, it has caused me uh, challenges with mobility and challenges with uh, uh, being able to process information. And it is not getting worse. It's not uh, likely to get any better. Um, so, and I have had no experience otherwise. So it's been my whole life journey. So gr growing up, uh, it was particularly difficult for me uh, because I, I could not be able as a child to fully articulate what my experiences were. Uh, my parents had to do a lot of the advocating for me. Uh, so I was very blessed that both my parents were educators, so they were very intelligent. They knew how to navigate the system, although they also had to learn a lot uh, because they didn't know all the ins and outs of my specific disability. So there was a, a learning curve for them as well. Right. Uh, but they basically had to be my advocates. And as a result of that experience, they kind of in, inspired me um, to eventually learn how to become my own advocate, teach me those skills. Uh, but it ultimately inspired me to become an advocate uh, for other people because I realized that a lot of others may not have those same uh, parents or or other members in their family to help them uh, advocate for their needs. So that kind of started my uh, trajectory into uh, disability advocacy um, as a realm. So, wow. So you know, you and I share you know very uh, similar. Uh, disabilities. I have a low vision disability as well, precludes me from driving. But um, you know, because I, I also was born with it and uh, went through the education system, navigating it as well. Had some really good parents, uh, really great parents that that helped to get me through it as well. Um, I'm interested to know what you found to be some of the challenges as a student going through school, getting educated. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's interesting. Because in my experience, it kind of was like we went through two extremes. So when I started, uh, I grew up in the, uh, maybe to set the context, I grew up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh -huh. uh, when, you know, we were seeing the Americans with Disabilities Act was coming out. Right. Uh, there was more push for mainstream. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I kind of was, I felt like in some ways a bit of a guinea pig uh, <laughs> when I was yeah. going through the school system. My pre-K kindergarten, uh, I was placed in a, basically a special ed uh, program. And my, that was not working out. Very quickly, we realized that was, I was being placed with students that had intellectual disabilities and other very significant behavioral challenges. And uh -huh. I was, my my mother described me as very bored through that system. So uh -huh. they took me out of that in kindergarten and put me into a college prep program. Uh, this was in uh, Orange Park, Florida, Jacksonville okay. area. Right. Um, 
So then that was the extreme opposite where the uh, expectations were, you know, college prep. So um, it was challenging for me to learn at the same proficiency Mm -hmm. uh, as my peers. What over time I realized and my family realized was that I was able to comprehend, but it did take me twice as long uh, to to read information. So um, the biggest challenge that came about in second grade, uh, I had a uh, some teachers and administrators who felt strongly that I did not belong in that school system and were wow. trying to push me out of it. And one of them, in fact, actually kind of insinuated that she felt that my disability was not physical, but was uh, intellectual because uh-huh. of the fact that it took me twice as long to do, um, especially the speed tests that they were requiring through math. Right, right. So those were uh, difficult, but each year, I we got more and more uh, resilient. Um, I ended up after middle school, got out of that school, that prep school, and went to a public school system where I was wow. mainstream for the rest right. of my K through twelve. Wow! Did did you have access to like um, you know nowadays? Uh, I did not. I grew up a probably a little earlier uh, than you did, but it would overlap uh, if it's the eighties and nineties with any kind of like magnification you know, devices that could blow up the print. Um, you know, back then, I don't remember working on computers so much, but it was a lot of hard mm-hmm. copy information. Uh, no PowerPoints. It was like transparency kind of slides and chalkboards and stuff like that. So I remember I did not have much access to, to those types of accommodations. I did get some extra time on standardized testing. What, what was that like for you then in terms of, uh, you know, access to system technologies or any other sorts of accommodations that may have been useful or that you just didn't have at the time? Yeah, um, well, I was, it started, I think, with, uh, I had somebody uh, assist me. I, I was I was assigned a, um, a tutor, in essence, to use PCTVs. Uh-huh. So those were around. Uh-huh. Um, that was where I kind of remember starting use use of technology and that one that worked out pretty well uh as i got older the 90s you know were big it was a big tech boom so there was all these new devices that um they were trying to kind of test me with and i found them uh mostly frustrating uh i remember specifically one device i think i was in fourth grade at this point uh was a it was called the Elvis. It was this big giant uh, mach- uh, camera that they put on my head. And I had this battery pack I had to put around my waist. And I think the thing weighed like three or four pounds. It's not like it'd be bad for your neck. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I did not like it. It malfunctioned. It was right. constantly challenging to kind of assemble it, you know, in a six, six classes a day. You have to, you know, right. by the time you're getting it assembled, everybody's moving on through the, the yeah. curriculum. Uh, so I found, um, and I still, even to this day, I'm very minimalist. I do use, uh, you know, magnifications on my computer, um, large type font if I can. But honestly, um, I'm very minimalist in trying to, for me, at least it worked best that I could just have a magnifier or look really close. Um, and, and it, for me, it worked just fine, but I know everybody's everybody's different and that's the key of education i think is to 
right. test those different uh, options to see what works best for an individual. Yeah, I think we can connect a little bit on minimalist, you know, kind of things. And, you know, I th I know there's assistive technologies out there that I can uh, likely benefit more in my work from. I, you know, but I found finding what works for me is good enough right now. And I keep trucking. So um, let, let me add, go back to what you said earlier, because uh, I this really struck uh, a chord with me. It resonated with me is this that, you know, you could comprehend uh, the information or concepts but it just took you longer. I, mm -hmm. I really relate to that. Like uh, reading slower, um, uh, you know, typing has always been, you know, a challenge for me as well. Um, still to this day, all that stuff's true. Um, and, and yet I, you know, would be able to comprehend things, uh, you know, just given a longer time. So how did, how did that, you know, how did you uh, come to terms with that? You know, cause I do know that yes, education you know, it, like when you said speed, I think you said speed something or other. I do remember like speed tests. Yeah, there, there. I remember one time there was this course that I was thrown into that was like all about speed reading and repetition and and, and drills and, and going fast. And, you know, certainly, you know, I, I was afforded extra time like on the SATs, but I don't remember taking extra time on regular testing. And, and I would always noticed the first person turning in their exam and I'd be last and you know, there, there was a bit of little reconciling with inside me about like um, speed and, and knowledge and, and those kind of things. How did how did you come to terms with that, especially having an educator that, you know, um, it, it sounds like, you know, they, they 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 mistook, you know, your visual disability for an intellectual disability. How did you kind of come to terms with that? I think you threw about resilience, but how did you get there? Um, well, I noticed uh, that the. the Bigger challenges for me were in the math side of things, whereas the I was very interested in um, history, uh, literature, the social, basically the social studies side mm. of things. And I think my my both my parents and I had some teachers that were that saw that I was bright and they were giving me reaffirming that, you know, I was uh, picking up on things they were they were you know, giving me that feedback and then going and sort of being my advocate to say, look, it's clear that where the challenges were coming up from were not uh, my ability or interest, motivation to learn. My challenges were particularly in testing mm -hmm. and the time it took me to get things through. Right. Um, and it was interesting because my math teacher in second grade particularly kind of pointed out, you know, it wasn't fair. Um, she would say to my parents, it wasn't fair to the other students that it uh, took me, that they would give me extra time on the test. Right. And my uh, parents responded, well, it's not fair to him that he has to, uh, that it takes him twice as long to do those things. He doesn't have any control over that. Right. So that kind of uh, I think one of the things, I guess, out of the adversity from these experiences taught me was like I started getting really stubborn, like I had something to prove, and <laughs> so it kind of that chip on my shoulder gave sure, me sure. some motivation to 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 do that, and right. it just got stronger and stronger as each year progressed. Like it felt like every year there was a new uh, obstacle barrier, somebody who felt I didn't belong there. Um, and I felt like I had a target on my back and I don't look back at that in a negative way. I think that right. kind of helped shape me to, um, to be more motivated and, and, 
as a student and as a peer uh, in my right. social standing. Absolutely. Like, as you're saying that, I, I think of uh, this famous quote by uh, Marcus Aurelius, a famous emperor stoic, mm-hmm. that said, obstacle is the way, you know, the, yes. your action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way. And it sounds like you were using like, you know, these, these uh, naysayers, we'll call them, you know, as fuel to to say, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to prove the people wrong that say I can't do X, Y, and Z. And uh, how that can be motivation. And and it, what resonates with me too, uh, on what you're saying is like, I, I, I developed like this underdog mentality. You know, people had lower expectations for me because of what, you know, they, they perceived as being, you know, something that I couldn't do or, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and for me, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that I, I like the underdog mentality a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, like where uh, maybe it's because I have more expectations for myself, but the, the external expectations are lower. And right. there's uh, less pressure. <laughs> Yes, I take it you're I take it you're also a fan of Ryan Holiday. You brought up obstacles the way I said that. Very big. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just read that actually uh, a few weeks ago. Um yeah. I've been a follower of his and some of his um his definitely his quotes in uh right. with Marcus Aurelius um yeah. meditations, you know. You know, and I'm um uh struck by how many examples in, in, in his books, his style is very you know, kind of uh, similar throughout his books. He'll use people throughout history, um, famous and not famous, uh, to show uh, how they live lives that are aligned with Stoic values. And I'm, I'm struck by how many people that he'll uh, highlight in these books are overcoming a disability. Mm-hmm. You know, there's many people throughout, like each of all of his series that he does. Um, and for me, I, I don't think like that's a necessarily a coincidence. I'm not sure he's picking up on that thread, but a lot of times people will may see disability as a you know liability, and it's such a oh, poor you know pity you know or whatever it might be. But it's kind of mm-hmm. like this is a you know something that for me at least has opened the door to to accessing so many different virtues or values that otherwise I might not be you know actualizing or learning about uh, at least in the you know if I didn't have a disability. Right. Uh, I, I I don't know if we'll be getting here or if I'm leading your uh, your topics, but uh, one of the things that I'm kind of struck by in this going into the current times we live in, it seems that there's a lot of uh, victimhood that's getting uh, right. talked about on and and both sides of the political aisle. Right. Um, and and I and I've witnessed this not just on the online space, but in my own personal life, I've seen a lot of people in my peers who have uh, almost like taken this defeatist mentality. And it's interesting because I don't think that was, that in my growing up, it was not encouraged. It was not allowed, um, particularly my parents, of my parents to, to let me be falling into that trap of thinking. Right. and I I feel like it's interesting now because coming out of that, and I'm very happy that I came out of that with that men's mentality. I'm seeing this shouldn't be just applied to disability. Any everybody has something that right. they have to uh, come to grips with. Right. Um, it could be a financial challenge. It could be a social issue. It could be you know matter right. of justice. Um, and, and you know the world isn't fair, but you can have an attitude of victimhood or you can have an attitude of I'm going to figure out how to persevere, overcome and become stronger from it. Um, 
And I think that to me is the um, the way the way forward. As you said, the obstacle is the way. It's right. the way to, to persevere through it. Now, I think you're bringing up a really interesting point that you know where where I when when I think of the word victim, uh, you know, I think of like different than being victimized almost like someone could say they've been victimized by somebody somebody did something bad but then mm -hmm. like afterwards um there is a road to hopefully recovery and not staying stuck and right. might have happened like you and i like i i know I, I did for a time was able to drive then my eyesight progressed to the point where i couldn't drive and initially and i say initially it was probably a couple of years i was just downright like upset i feel I felt demasculated i felt you know, my lack of independence was taken from me. I had some of that not fairness you know, within circulating within me. I was angry at times. Um, but I, you know, eventually grew out of that. I didn't stay there. I didn't wallow there. I didn't stay stuck. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, um, you know, that's where I feel like the the the, the part of being a victim uh, or being in that space of being a victim is just it's like a car in a parking place. It's not going anywhere. That's and right. It's just so stuck. And, and, and there is this, you know, sense of not evolving, not moving past it. And, and, and for me, you know, get, figuring out how to get unstuck, being in that place, moving on, keep going. And I, and I, I think you're so right. Like whether it's disability or some other adversity, like life will inevitably bring those challenges to all of us. It will visit us. Um, and it's kind of like where growth happens outside the comfort zone. Like what an opportunity it is to grow and to to not be in this place where, you know, it's not fair. I I got three sons, and you know there there is this mentality of like everything's got to be equal equity, and and you know is in the yeah. part of the space that we're in with disability, and I get that. At the same time, I'm not sure we're entitled always to it necessarily, um, and, and 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 especially in spaces that aren't like requiring public governance and accommodations. So like yes. uh, you know like with my kids, uh, oftentimes if if their portions aren't equal on the ice cream I'm giving them and they say not fair, I'm like, that's right. It's not. Sorry. But this is a good lesson for the rest of life in some ways, you know, to, to deal with the, this sense of fairness, you know, and, and right. we have it like like you were saying earlier, um, you know, the, the, the teacher had a perspective that it's not fair. Right. Um, right. And in those spaces where, again, it's public, it's access, it's education, there is like rules and, and things that do, you know, where, where we could say that. But there's also other spaces where things just aren't fair. And how do we you know deal with that instead of being a victim? That's right. Yeah, I totally concur with everything you said. I, I mean, get the, equit the equitable discussion, I think it's, you know, the reality is that human nature is not it's impossible to have true equity. Right. I think creating equal opportunities is, is a lofty goal that should be achieved or, or strive, striving to achieve. Right. Um, but that doesn't, you know, what do they say? Equal opportunity does not necessarily mean equal outcome. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I mean, um, I'm never going to be able to drive. Like it's just, unless there is a, uh, technology of the auto the uh the driverless vehicle that works right um that's just never going to happen for me but i can be able to adapt to that by having living in a community where i or a neighborhood that has accessible um walking paths that has a public transportation route um that i have a social network that can give me 
transportation. You know, it's not the same as having my own vehicle, but those are things that I can I can control at least to right. some extent to try to adapt to that. Yeah, adaptability I found to be a huge virtue to learn how to do that, and and I think the operative word you say there's opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So you know we got something in front of us. We have an opportunity. You know, it's kind of up to us to walk through that door, to do the hard work. You know, to 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 learn not to succeed, continue and show up again the next day, and uh, you know to take advantage of that opportunity to the best of our capacity. You know, for me, it, it's access to opportunities more than you know, here it is on a silver platter, you know, kind of a thing, That's right. you know, to, to, to be able to then just like here, it's gifted to you uh, necessarily. It's just like, okay, here's an opportunity. And, and so, you know, for me, you know, through school, you know, uh, being, having access to those opportunities didn't take away the workload. Like it, it still meant that I, you know, still had the same you know, date that I had to show up for that test um, to take the test. If my questions weren't different, the, the 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 work product had to be as of high quality wasn't graded any differently um i had to figure out ways of you know synthesize reading through all the materials you know the same amount of materials i had to read through and study was the same nothing cha- changed there um what I, what i did have to do uh, i think going to your point of adaptability was learn systems knowing that you know right. i couldn't get through all that material i can't read it all um, so what, 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 what do I need to learn on what, what, what is the relevant information that I should learn? How's the best way to go about doing it? How can I learn mnemonic ways of studying that can, you know, facilitate me, you know, being able to recall, uh, information and, and those kind of things. So, so I'm, I'm circling the drain here on asking you, like, what, what, what are some like key strategies that you found, um, that are important in terms of adaptability in your your life as being someone with low vision, like you, you were kind of getting it on there with transportation, but you you also work and you do all these different kind of things. Um, so talk to me about uh, what you've learned about adaptability. Um, well, I'd say I think one of the first things that I learned, a lot of the things I've learned actually have been more social than right. physical barriers. Now, I mean, um, the my teacher for the visually impaired, uh, you know, TBI. Uh, I had from, I think, middle school on through high school. Um, she was she was a short lady from New Jersey. She was no nonsense. You know, she would go up and say, how you doing? You know, she had that real Jersey uh, strong, <laughs> Jersey strong. Right. And so she and she didn't take BS from me. I, if oh, I didn't want to okay. do something, she wouldn't like accept that. And um, so she was helped me build a lot of confidence. And so she taught me the the technical skills of using the white cane. Um, she taught me my typing, you know, helping with my typing proficiency, uh, using using magnifiers. But what I think was the most important thing was asking questions. Mm. She pointed out a lot of the. Uh, this is a simple example, like when you go into a, a grocery store. Let's say let's say I go into a, a shoe store. And uh, the the salesperson will come up to my friend uh, instead of me and ask them questions. And, you know, she she pointed it out in a way that was very humorous. Like people Uh don't realize that they're doing that that often. Uh And she took it like kind of helped me to look at it from uh, using humor to kind of counterflect that. 
right. and engaging in, um, in conversation instead of being aggressive or combative. Right. Uh, so those were some ways I learned to adapt. And especially from um, learning as I was going to get become independent as an adult, that I needed to I needed to be willing to put myself out there and ask questions, um, and not let let the myself become isolated due to the uh, both social and the physical um, uh, stigmas around disability. Wow, I I love that you know, and and that does resonate with me a little bit. Um, you know, communicating with people, um, for me, it's a literacy skill in some ways. Like, so reading, writing, I think is what jumps out to most people in terms of literacy. So for me, again, you know, reading's difficult uh, without, you know, adaptive equipment, can't really do it. Writing, which nowadays is typing, um, you know, again, very cumbersome, hard. I, I don't really do much on the smartphone in terms of typing anything you know, uh, into it. Um, so th those two I, I found to be like very, very challenging, um, but I can talk, you know, oral communication, like you're, you're, you're saying, asking questions, like going back to stoicism, like I think they say the, the godfather of stoicism is Socrates, and Socrates and the Socratic method is known for just question asking, realizing mm -hmm. we don't know all, all the answers and, and how much we can learn from anybody uh, is, is super key. And I, and I love how your teacher there was teaching you the art of humor, and, and I found that to be disarming and endearing, you know, with people, you know, to, to go into conversations and, and what a gift, right? Like social fluency and being able to connect with people and make those connections. For, for me, I, I feel like that's the currency in which I've found success in my life is, is by doing that. You know, for me, it's been something that's been an asset. So when you say adaptability in that way, that really does resonate with me. Do you, do you find yourself to, are you a better listener? Do you think through your disability at all? Um, <laughs> that's that's interesting because um, some and I've, as I've matured, I've gotten better at this. But a lot of people think uh, or had thought that I was not a good listener because I was constantly um, interrupting in conversation uh, and it was driving people nuts. And that's <laughs> a bad habit that I've had to learn to to adjust. Uh, but what I what I, I was wasn't intentionally trying to cut people off. Um, for the most part, unless it was a really intense debate. Uh, usually it was, I, I'm, my mind is moving and I'm trying to understand following with what somebody is saying. And uh, oftentimes I have to like stop the conversation to be sure I understand it before it continues on. Um, so I find myself an active, that was my, um, I guess, way of learning how to be an active listener, even though mm. people misinterpreted it uh, as being combative or rude or, or interrupting. Right. Um, but so a lot of my, a lot of the things that I've learned is from uh, processing through conversation. Right. I even have to sometimes talk it, talk out my thoughts. Right. People to be sure I am understanding, you know, I'm, I'm learning as I'm talking about it through it instead of it just, all of that information just coming in right and one, and one uh bite and then me just regurgitating it out regurgitating, if that yeah. makes i i hope that made sense right right now that's i can see that being an active way of processing it. and yeah if people don't know that could be like you know yeah you're being rude and this that and the other do you, do you ever get the comment from people 
you're moving around so well or you're doing your thing so well, I would never know that you have, you know, a vision mm -hmm. disability or a disability. How, how do you receive that comment? Um, well, it's interesting. I get it too. I, That's why I'm asking. It's it's interesting because there are some people who who said that to me who are my close friends. They, right. they would say that. Sure. I forget, you know. Yeah. And to me on that end, when that comment's made, usually it's because disability is not in their mind. Right. I take it as a compliment. And, right. and that's kind of been my mission, I think, in, in, in life has been that disability is one component of a person. It is not an identity or solely defining somebody's identity. Right. And, and I think our society has, you know, over, over time has felt that disability is something like there's this, what, what is disability? It's something that it makes you different from everybody else. And we're trying to break from that mentality that doesn't mean like that again it doesn't mean like i'm all of a sudden now able to do every single thing and i should right. and i should be able to do every single thing but in the sense of a uh of treatment um i should be should be held to the same standards uh, in terms of my character um and and my contribution um as everyone else so on that side i feel like it's a compliment yeah. Uh, I think on the other side of the of the coin, it's it's more of a also indicative of our. We still have a long way to go in terms of our social conditioning on on viewing people with disabilities. It's almost like I'm. I don't know if you've seen Stella Young. Um, uh, she did a she went did a TED talk. Uh, she had a physical disability back in. She passed away sadly, but back in 2014. Uh -huh. She gave this great TED talk about how um, she was viewed as the exception. Everybody would say, you're the exception. You're so exceptional as uh, implying that right. she was an exception to the norm and the norm being right. people with disabilities are just not able to do the things that she was doing. Right, right. So um, we're trying to change that, um, shift that perception, uh, I think, and trying to get people to see us as no different than anybody else. You know, going back to what you were saying, um, you know, about uh, the, the comment, I, you know, I'm very neutral on it. Like, you, I think the, I'm asking because I, like in, in retrospect, uh, when it when it's made, um, whether, yes, my close friends who know I have a disability will say that sometimes they'll catch themselves like, well, it just doesn't seem seem like because you and I have a little bit like we're not totally blind. We're uh, I, right. I assume like me, you're legally blind. So sometimes that right. like people don't understand what that really means. Um, and, and then, you know, yeah, people I'm meeting for the first time or I come in and do a guest lecture for a class or a talk or this, that or the other. Um, they're, they're like, wow, you know, I can't even tell. And I never really take offense to it. Um, but afterwards, I'm like, is that, you know, you know, I don't think anyone's ever meant it as a bad thing. But I'm like, you know, like kind of like you're saying, like, is this, you know, kind of indicative of how when we, if someone had a physical disability, say, often like the, the stereotype is, is like the first thing they see um, when they see, say, somebody with a mobility challenge and, and they're using a walker or a wheelchair is everything that person must not be able to do. You know, mm -hmm. like I, the first thing I see is like, well, they must not be able to play soccer. They must not be able to like, you know, do this, that and the other. And, it, and it's just like goes right to what people can't do. And, and, uh, right. and, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I use that example about like uh, um, getting into my my 
career side of things, I, I for a while did um, work in the in the workforce development side of things. So I would get this question about, well, what kinds of jobs can people with disabilities do? do? And, you know, if you really think about that, it's how, how silly that, that sounds, because it's like right. there's this the select group of jobs. Yeah. And so sometimes I get, I get to be a smart aleck and I would say, <laughs> well, NASCAR driving, park surgeon, um, yeah. you know, sniper in the Marines. <laughs> you know? um, just because, so, you know, my way of life, let's reframe, let's let's flip this, this script here on this question. Right. Let's ask people who will have full sight, uh-huh. Are you qualified to be a heart surgeon, a NASCAR driver, or a, a marksman in right. the Marines? Good, good. Most people can't do those jobs, and they're fully sighted. Right, right. That's not that's not a, a reflection that they're incapable of doing other jobs. Sure, it's just it's a it's a skill set that's very specific to a few handful of jobs. Right, and I think that's the conversation that. Uh, it seems when it comes to disability, we we do tend to jump into the things that you can't do um, and forgetting that there is a wide variety of other uh, fields, uh, other talent, skills, hobbies that could be uh, be op- opportunities for somebody right. with disability, regardless of what that actual disability is. I, I, I That's such a, a perfect uh, description of, of- Basically, instead of looking at people what they can't do, what 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 can we you know look, like to your point of asking better questions, what can they we do like and you know we we can all the things that we can do and looking at those different parts of say our even our identity like you were saying before like disability is one piece of you know how many uh, you know how many pieces of our identity can we extrapolate you know really mm-hmm. there's so many dimensions there and and disability just happens to be one of them. Um, and, and so like your point about um, uh, the, what's her name, Shelly, the, the, the TED talk. Um, uh, oh, uh, Stella, Stella, Stella Young. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not uh, familiar with her, but like, you know, that, that this idea that like, well, you know, it's, instead of say, looking at people like, well, they must be the exception because my, you know, my, my take, my sense, my, you know, generalization I'm making, you know, has most people must not be able to be employed or, you know, get graduated. <laughs> Or you know, be able to you know be included in society uh, that they're doing it. It's exceptional, you know, and 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 you know, seeing that part of uh, people is like, okay, yeah, they they must represent many more people who can do these kind of things and probably even more extraordinary things. Yeah, she she says, um, I want to live in a world where disability is not the exception but the norm. The norm. Yeah. And she really highlights. Um, I really highly recommend it because it it. it it summed up my whole philosophy about how um, people are, have taken those like her and me and others who are who are standing out and being ambassadors, if you will. Um, she says, you know, the common response is, "You're such an inspiration." I don't think most people realize this, but she's like, it's basically objectifying people with disabilities mm-hmm. as, okay, you know, oh, my life. I, I need to put my life in perspective because that person with a disability has a terrible life and my, my problems are not that bad. And she's trying to flip and say, you know, it's just like anything else that everybody else has to deal with. You just, you figure out how to adapt. But if we can't get past that way of thinking, it's going to, it makes it much more challenging for us 
to to have that true inclusion uh, in in our social um, right. service. How, how do we thread the needle between like objectifying people with disabilities um, that that are you know trying to be framed in a lens lens to like, inspire people? Well, you know, if if you know you're you able bodied person, you know, are struggling with this, and this person over here who had a disability and you know uh, was able to do it, then you should be able to do it. Um, how mm -hmm. do we parse that out from, like we were talking about earlier, say like Ryan Holiday, who's using like historical examples of people we can learn from and grow from, and and you know be inspired by like inspiration in a good, you know like a good way, like you know I right. I know a lot of people with disabilities who do want to be inspirational, like people without disabilities who want to inspire people to to be the better version of themselves. How do we like parse the objectifying part out of it, out of like hey there is something inspirational about people uh, um, overcoming challenges and obstacles? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with um, with people saying, I find that you've been able to live a, this an independent life podcast. Oh. So somebody who's been able to achieve independence or maximize oh. their independence despite their disability, um, right. That is that is inspirational. Where I think the issue is is when it's seen as to to frame that as okay, it implies that other people who have a disability, their lives can't they they couldn't achieve that. Like that, mm -hmm. put it almost like in a pedestal, like right, that's right, right. possible. Yeah. Or that's the exception. And um, right, I think I think that's where the issue comes in. And I don't know if this is threading the needle, but I guess like the message for me has been my experiences are unique to me. And maybe there are some things like you and I can clearly we share, we have some common uh, uh, experiences of our own, but we don't represent every single person with low vision or every single no. person legally right. blind. And, um, you know, even it sounds like from your experience, you, you had, uh, you had the ability to drive and then, and right. that, over time. So you have your own unique set of uh, barriers that you had to overcome that are maybe are differing from mine. And I think that's important is that not one person represents an entire group. And we, point. you know, we should embrace that, take that as every individual is different. Um, right. And each one may have a, a different set of obstacles, but at the end of the day, we we all want to be given as much opportunity as possible to achieve the same right. goal: independence, ability to contribute, um, you know, being able to have a meaningful life. You know, right. And to that point, something that may separate both you and I from other people's situation. Um, I don't know, but it sounded like in your intro there. You know, like being uh, born into a family that had like supportive, engaged, active parents was important. It definitely was for me. Like, mm -hmm. I can, uh, you know, imagine if I didn't have that, my situation would be much different today. So maybe mm -hmm. talk to me about um, the role, you know, of either your parents or having engaged parents um, during those formative years, you know, played in in, in your trajectory or, or potentially the trajectory of anyone with a disability. Uh, we've had parents on this podcast that we've inter you know interviewed about their experiences as being a parent. 
um, of, of children and, and youth and now adults with disabilities and, you know, also people with disabilities who are parents. So, right. you know, like, yeah, talk to me about like that as far as being a, a piece of uh, your your life, your experience. And having yeah, that. I was very, very fortunate. Um, my mother owned a school in Jacksonville. Owned it? What? what what's the name of the school? The Brooch School. Broach school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, her, her, her maiden name was Broach. All right. Uh, so she started a school in the seventies. Uh, this was back. She had, she had taught in inner city, man, I think it was New York of Manhattan and Long Island and noticed back then that the public school system was not really giving attention to students that had the disabilities, behavior, particularly behavioral uh, uh -huh. related disabilities or learning uh, challenges. So she, uh, her family lived in Jacksonville. So she moved back home, started this school, uh, a not-for-profit school. It's still around actually um, today. Cool. Uh, and so she started with her passion was uh, to the no, no child left behind in essence to help those right that were um, struggling, um, that were be falling through the cracks in the public school system. And then it, it morphed into um, the McKay Scholarship here in, in Florida, um, helped boost that to make that more available for wow. others, financial okay. uh, challenges. So so that was on my mom's side. It was kind of interesting because this was before I was born. So she, what she said was, it was the, the, the perspective even as an educator changed when she became a parent because she now understood why so many parents have get frustrated. She used right. to say like, she used the word special needs uh, kids uh, require special needs. Parents right. was her, her right. motto. Um, <laughs> That's a bummer. And, and when I, the challenges I went through, especially in, in elementary school with the college prep school I went to, uh, really opened her eyes to understanding a, a lot of times you do have to fight tooth and nail right. to get to get accommodations. And um, especially I think back then when uh, yeah, so that maybe that culture was nah. students with disabilities don't belong here. So right. she had to experience that. Right. Um, as far as my dad, my dad was kind of on a different side of things where he was much older than most of my uh, uh, peers' parents. He was a, uh -huh. a Korean War vet. Um, right. So he grew up in Great Depression wow. era. And so he understood, he his view of disability was much more stark to, you know, you're not going to be able to be independent. You're not going to, you're going to be dependent fully on you know, social programs. And um, so I think a lot of his fears were, um, especially as uh, same thing going through those, that school system was a fear of me not being able to achieve independence. Mm -hmm. um, he was very tough on me, I think, to partly because of his upbringing. He, he grew up with a tough uh, uh, parental system. So right. a lot of that kind of transferred yeah. in, in his parenting. But um, I think it was also because he was worried about me being um, stigmatized. And as right. a result of these combinations of experiences, um, I think that kind of helped me to become a, an advocate for myself. So right. I hope 
it was a very long answer to your question. No, it's great. Would you say he helped with you know teaching grit a little bit? Like uh, yes, having the hard knock. He, I inherited uh, uh, to both our frustrations his his stubbornness. <laughs> um, but and it was one of the things I say to this day is one sure way to get me to do something is to tell me not to do it or right. that I can't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it gets me it gets me motivated. Um, I'll give an example. Was this was this was pure pride on my part. It, it was later on. I regretted the decision, but I, uh, um, when I was going into high school, there was, um, an ROTC Naval ROTC program. And I was really in back then I was really into like, um, military movies, uh, mm-hmm. like Hunt for Red October and right. some of the Clint Eastwood movies. And so, sure. Uh, I was just interested in the topic. So I said, I think I could join that. And they said, well, you can't because of your visual disability. I will watch me. And I uh, pushed myself to get into it. Um, uh, they didn't They didn't give me anything that would involve uh, major visual right. uh, skills. So, But I was still able to be in the class for two years. And um, so, you know, that... <laughs> That was an example where that I kind of like uh, once I got that kind of that that bug in me to feel like I could push through a, a, a barrier, um, right. I was determined to do it. Well, yeah, it's kind of a paradoxical nature of, of life, I feel like, you know, these things that like often are dubbed, you know, as as maybe a liability, which it can be stubbornness, can also be an asset, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially in our world about overcoming barriers, you know, and, you know, if I can't get through the front door, is there a side door, a back door, the window? Can I go underground? You know, like we start figuring right. out, can I be like Santa Claus and go through the chimney? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Is there Which way in, you know, and, and we we won't take no for an answer. So, so again, I, th- I think that could be, you know, uh, a good example of how these things that might be, you know, seen as a liability can be these kind of assets uh, that are yeah. Did did you um, ever get into athletics or you know kind of anything like that? I I got it in later, and yeah. um, running was when I uh, I, awesome. I when I moved to Tallahassee. So I uh, throughout school at college, I was not I was not athletic, and I um, I was a liability. It was like every kind of sports that involved the ball. I, yeah. I was like, it was like a magnet that would hit me with <laughs> whether it was <laughs> basketball, I would sit in the bleachers and I get smacked in the right. head. Right. Yeah. Baseball, I, I was always dodging it. And yeah. So, um, so I avoided <laughs> athletics like the plague when I was right. in school. Um, and then when I moved uh, after graduating undergrad, I moved to Tallahassee uh, and I got from, you know, meeting individuals like Jane Johnson. Right. Uh, and friends that were in the golf wins club, uh, that was a big running community here uh-huh. in Tallahassee. So, Super cool. uh, and so I got involved in that. And years later, I kind of got the bug to try for a, I didn't do a full marathon, uh, but I did a half marathon. Long uh, enough. Yeah. In, at Disney a few years ago. Oh, fun. Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. I haven't done it in the last year or so. I had taken a little bit of a hiatus, but, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, that was, I found uh, running, there was that social 
thing that kind of pulled me into right. it, I think. Right. I, I ask because like um anything with a ball, it, it's it's either eye hand, eye foot, and and you and I are missing a pretty significant part of that quick equation, <laughs> the eye part. <laughs> so yeah, I I, I remember uh, having enjoying it but not being very good at it and yeah so i got into like swimming i could follow this black line back and forth <laughs> all day uh so i could do that and and now i kind of like into running too and 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 for me it is kind of there is this element of being sketchy in in the sense that like i don't have the greatest perception mm -hmm. you know, with especially on trails um yes uh, you know like even sidewalks curbs that kind of stuff but i just for me i find it to be very cathartic um, I can get in, you know, uh, do deep contemplation, reflection. If I'm ever with somebody, you know, it's it's always enjoyable to, to have conversations and and that kind of thing. So I, I, you know, I'm glad to hear that you found something like that because I think for all people, like this, this it's just a, an important part of yes, physical health, but also just like intellectual, emotional, absolutely emotional mental health, stress yes. management, <laughs> health. Yes, yes. And that, and that, that especially for when I started my job, the stresses of, of work, right? I did find that outlet. Um, so important. Was was very, very cathartic. Yeah. Um, you know, you got you to gotta figure out a way to release that stress in a, right. in a healthy way, because otherwise you're, you're oh. running to the bottle. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. And so you're saying like, you know, say work stress, um, which stress is stress, stress, you know, increases heart rate. It gets these hormones going, you know, gets our thoughts going and our body's basically preparing to be physical, but often mm -hmm. like in the, 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 the modern environment that we're in, most modern stresses aren't requiring us to do a physical exertion, like to, to, to fight or flee. It's, you know, we're just, just staying stuck. So for me, it's, it's like, yes, let's move our bodies so we can manage a lot of the the stress that our, our, our physiology is going through based on these psychological stressors that are in there. You yeah. brought up work. I did uh, see here that you worked uh, for uh, Governor Scott in Health and mm -hmm. Human Services. Um, how, did, how did you land there? Fill in that space between like, you know, you're going to, where did you go, FSU? You went to Florida State? Or yeah, so I'll, I'll give you, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try to bridge it because it is yeah. So how do you, yeah, how do you land in the governor's <laughs> yeah, well, in politics in Tallahassee to, from school? <laughs> before we get to the governor side and the yeah. office side, where, where it started, really started, was I went to undergrad at UNF, University uh -huh. of Florida in Jacksonville. Yeah, great. And uh, yeah, very underrated school. Uh, no, I love you. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm familiar with them. Yeah, they got uh, a good pool. I, I and I, I was very interested in political science, public policy, I was not necessarily thinking of myself going in a career of right. disability policy. I was thinking more like disability advocacy was a, a hobby for me. Right. Um, you know, I just did that because that was just something I did. But um, I was very interested in politics. I had a, we had a, a divided home. I grew yeah. up in the oh, that's in good. 2000 election. Um, yeah. And it was interesting because my father didn't, he did not vote when uh, the 2000 election happened, uh, but he criticized another family member who did vote the way he didn't want it to go. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, you had the opportunity to influence. Classic. The, uh, you know, I was 14 at this point, so I couldn't vote. And of course, Florida at the time, the Bush Gore thing, like was yeah. this ground zero for chads and 
And vote, and votes did matter the single vote <laughs> yeah and i was rebellious i was uh so i kind of that got me the that started the bug and it, it it drove my dad nuts that i would remind him of that I was like, because of your <laughs> way i felt like you were acting uh i felt like i had to i had to show you one up you right uh, so in 2004 uh i registered as a republican Mm -hmm. And he registered as a Democrat. I got him to vote, which I was proud of because <laughs> and I still to this day feel this way. I, I feel uh, it's our civic duty. You have a vote. Sure. And you may not be able to choose the candidates at the, in the general that you get, but you at least have a vote. Yeah. Um, so that kind of started it. And then uh, in my final year of my college, I had a professor. She worked for the Clinton administration. Uh, as the ambassador of the UN in his second term, Nancy Soderbergh. Uh -huh. So she got me really interested in foreign policy. She was trying to push me to go to DC, but I didn't have any connections in DC besides her. Um, and it was 2008 when the financial crisis happened, recession. Right. So job opportunities were not that easy to get unless you were really competitive. And I wasn't, uh -huh. I wasn't, on the on the high echelon of uh, of candidates to be considered, but it it was honestly a good thing because I think fate had it that and I'm glad that it worked out that way because I think I'd be miserable in D.C. Right. Um, so that came in uh, 2008. I graduated and I was unemployed. I didn't have a real uh, idea of what to do, so I applied for. I had a friend who told me. Well, you could apply for a governor's commission. There's a bunch of boards that have disability representation on it. Mm. Um, so I applied for the Commission for Transportation Disadvantaged. Didn't know anything about state government. It was just, you know, what do, what do I have to lose at this point? I'm just trying to fill in the void yeah. until I can either get a master's degree or find find my, my job. And this was during Charlie Crist's administration. So... I was uh, I was appointed by some fluke. I had no idea. I just got it, and it it really gave me that was my entryway into state government, and I got real passionate about it. I I learned about the transportation disadvantage program. I learned about uh, Medicaid, Medicaid waiver, vocational rehabilitation. You know, I knew about vocation voc rehab from being a client of blind services, but I didn't know uh -huh. about the policy side of things. Right. So that was like, really got me interested. And I came to FSU for a master's. That was really what sealed it. Um, and got an internship in the Christ administration, uh, going into health and human services, basically. So that was kind of what the, the setup was. Wow. Then, as you know, 2010, um, uh, Rick Scott, who had no political background prior to this, uh -huh. um, he came in, and it was a it was a shock for for many people that he did get elected, right? Um, and I was just at the right place at the right time, or you know, it was a, at the at the beginning, it was ner it made me nervous because I thought I was going to lose my job. I had just gotten employed, and uh -huh. you know, it's a very political environment. Oh yeah, but because there was this sort of uh, knowledge gap. Um, a lot of people, there was a lot of uh, turnover with the transition. And, and so that kind of got me a chance to be able to, to meet 
uh, Rick Scott and his leadership team. And Jane Johnson eventually uh, became my supervisor. So I got to work with them and they were very open to new ideas. And um, the first for biggest issue that Rick Scott came in on was something he inherited was the issue with uh, the Agency for Persons with Disabilities. There, um, they were having uh, a deficit that was uh, basically at a point where emergency action had to be taken. Uh-huh. So I think disabilities became a priority just because of that crisis. And right. uh, Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> and so right. he didn't have, I don't think Rick Scott, when he came in, had an agenda uh, for disabilities per se, but he did have an agenda on employment because right. that was when we were having the recession. Right. So because of that, I was able, Jane and I were able to pitch an idea uh, to his leadership team to create a commission that was focusing on um, how do we improve employment for people with disabilities? Right. So that was my getting where I kind of felt like this marriage between my policy uh, interests and my disability advocacy came together. Wow. Uh, and it was really exciting because my previous work with the other commission uh, that Chris was, had set up, it was a general disability commission. It didn't have a specific focus. It was just sort right. of all things to all people. Right, right. And it felt like, you know, you do all this work, you put this giant report together, and then it would just get shelved. It would just be like, you know, lip service, thank you for this great right. report, and nothing would really get, or very few things would get done. Yeah. So I learned that lesson uh, that when we did this jobs commission under Scott's administration was to make sure it was focused and get it to um, resonate with the decision makers because we Mm. wanted to see action. Right. Uh, So our focus was particularly how do you change perceptions amongst the employers? Um, Going to the conversation we had earlier about focusing on the things that people with disabilities uh, are gifted at, looking at the individual as what they bring to the job, not based on their disability. Um, And then we looked at all the varying social service programs uh, and how they could be better at coordinating that message uh, to to the employer community. Right. Wow, that's awesome trajectory there. It seems like the universe was conspiring, you know, for you to be in that place at that time. Um, I felt that way. Yeah, I was very, very, very lucky. Um, And it was it was interesting because now looking at hindsight, uh, going to the D.C. route, a lot of people have left since since 2008. Right. You know, it's it's I know state secret that dc is a gridlocked environment right yeah and people have kind of gotten jaded to you up and spit you out. Yeah. the state government side seems to be much more yeah. um, appealing in terms of of policy development these days you know i'm, I'm certainly you know old enough to to, to recall uh, those years uh which you know like you said you know the 2008 you know housing you know which led to recession jobs you know unemployment now specifically people with disabilities. You were director of this commission, right? To, to, yes. Okay. So um, I, I think you you skated on like that one part of 
you know, trying to correct misperceptions maybe of employers on hiring people with disabilities and, you know, right. maybe bring that to light. What what did you find to be effective, you know, in that area? I, I'm asking them also like our, our Center for Independent Living, we have an employment services program. And one of the many things that we do is reaching out to our, you know, business community. Right. And, and being a Center for Independent Living, over half of us have a disability. So we can easily talk to the merits of it. But what, what did you find effective, you know, in, in really trying to, you know, destigmatize or equilibrate? We found the conversations often um, were the ones that were largely communicating, like your group, uh, the, the CILs, uh, the Boke Rehab World, the, the, basically all the social service arena. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm making a generalization. I'm not saying that everybody did this, but you know, often the, the narrative was around help this person because it's the right thing to do. Uh -huh. And and not necessarily thinking about what does the individual bring to the job. Right. And um, in fact, even right. in the in the commission meetings we had, we would see this. This would this narrative was playing in front of us um, because we had social, we had uh, service providers right. on our board, and we had businesses on our board, and they would be communicating like there was this disconnect. Um, and and so that really was an eye opener for us that, that we needed to understand that it needed to be a win, ultimately a win win. If you want a person to succeed in the job, they have to be qualified for the job for one. They have right. to be able, it has to match their interests, their skill set, and it has to match the employer side right. of things. You know, what are they going to bring? Because most businesses are not going, yeah, you know, I know these days everything's about a lot of talk about the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh -huh. uh, and and I know that is getting uh, a lot of a lot of attention, especially mm -hmm. in large corporations. But sure. at the end of the day, I mean, even though those uh, programs are, when you look at it, really, it is a business decision um, that they're creating these programs to improve their whatever their property or uh, right. improve their image. But um, you know, in the reality of things, when it comes to an individual being hired, it, it, it needs to be understood that we want individuals um, to be best matched with their skill set and right. uh, best matched with the employer's needs. Right. So that was that was, I think, the big uh, awakening. And then, you know, from a narrative side, how did you, how did we as a state help facilitate a, a coalition? around that narrative because right. um, you had so many different agencies that were uh, going out and their part of their mission was to help get people they were serving to get in these jobs. Right. So what could we, what kinds of tools and training could we help uh, facilitate that for those organizations? So, you know, that's truly a paradigm shift in a lot of ways. Like yeah, you, the, the way I hear it is that you're coming into a, a culture here where, you know, it's almost like the way you described it, I think of the charity model, like the way that people were yes. thinking of it is like, you know, well, we're going to we're going to give some people some jobs. It's the right thing to do and might be good for our brand. And, you know, this that, and the other versus like, oh, this person can actually make a positive contribution to the business, be good for our work culture, can really take us to the next level and, you know, be, be a really you know valuable you know asset to the company or the corporation. 
Um, it's a it's a shift in the paradigm, you know. And that's, that's right. That doesn't. T- it's not an overnight thing there, you know, because that has a lot to do with you know probably deep ingrained, embedded you know attitudes and beliefs and and uh, other things like that. And I think you're right. I think it is kind of like confusing the the diversity, equity, inclusion discussion as well. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we got to, you know, we're, we're just looking at getting the, the numbers to the right places that are going to be reflective of, you know, how we should be seen as an organization versus like, hey, you know, having a you know, diverse group of people that are working for us can bring, you know, a wide variety of different ideas or, or value and you know, just in, in versus like, you know, we're, we're going to do a handout of a, a position just because it's what we think we should be doing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of on another a- aspect of the culture shift, we also found um, as we were doing this work, uh, there, the big initiative that came out of it was in the employment first. I don't know if that has ever been brought up uh-huh. in your podcast, the employment first kind no, of. No, it hasn't been brought up. Okay. So, you know, especially when we saw the developmental disability side of things, because we Uh looked at all disabilities. We were not just focused on physical. We were looking at developmental, intellectual, mental health. Um, And so we got together um, with particularly the Florida Developmental Disabilities Council was one of Uh our lead partners. Um, We noticed that, and this isn't just unique to Florida, this is a nationwide issue. A lot of the programs uh, from the education system all the way through the social um, service programs that serve adults, uh, employment has not been prioritized as a goal of these systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we especially see that, I think, in the world of um, home and community-based services and right. school systems where a lot of these individuals, employment was not even considered right. to be a viable option. Right. And so... Um, so we also tackled that to try to figure out how could we, from a policy standpoint, from a systems change way of doing it, uh, where employment is considered at the front end. Now, right. that doesn't mean that everybody employment is destined. Yeah. yeah, not everybody is destined to be in a competitive, uh, high-paying job and working, you know, uh, full-time, 40 right. hours a week. Sure. But at least have that be considered uh, as part of that. You know, you saw at the national level uh, that conversation was happening with the Workforce uh, Investment Opportunity Act. You see yeah, how they yeah. were trying to shut down a lot of the uh, uh, minimum, some minimum wage yeah. and sheltered workshops. Yeah. Uh, so we, we were really, I felt as a state, getting ahead of the curve on that one and right. trying to, to look at our systems at the state level to figure out how we could maximize that. And it resulted in uh, a nine partner agency uh, collaboration where we all got together uh, almost on a monthly basis and looked at each of our programs to how we could uh, support that. Um, And it really made a big impact when you had the governor's, you know, signature behind it because the agency leadership to be behind it. Get it behind it. So, so all these efforts at the end of the day, you know, to get someone employed, um, you know, has a lot of, you know, different value, I think, that it can bring to a person. What, 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 what have you found either personally or within this work of, of knowing that you're, you're getting people with disabilities into meaningful, you know, professional career careers? Um, 
what does that mean for a person, especially with a disability that might, you know, have, you know, some, some extra, you know, barriers towards employment? What does that bring to them? I think that um, most people want to be able to not just be independent, but to be able to contribute. Right. You know, I mean, especially at, you, see, you see this into like the millennials and the Gen Z. It's sort of this theme about they want to have an impact. Right. Um, whatever that means. It, it could mean varying ways of having an impact. Sure. Um, but you see a lot of interest in social justice, social change. Um, and I think having a job is a key component right. to achieving that, not just for a paycheck. No. But to be able to, you know, be paid to do those, those having that effect. Um, and it's an entryway into all other opportunities, whether it's to get a home, mm -hmm. uh, to, to be able to have a social uh, group, because, you know, you're a lot of times you're um, making friends with being at, at right. your workplace. So it has meant, I mean, for me personally, it's been, I have been a career oriented person. That's part of my personality. Right. Um, and so when I was able to have that, it really did boost my um, self-worth, my self-esteem. Right. It doesn't mean that I sure. that my, my self-worth has to be solely dependent on my job, but it's certainly a big effect yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you know, because I, I feel like, you know, especially with this kind of you know, philosophy of employment first, it, it's just not a paycheck, which is you know, it is part of that. And that's access to, you know, kind of like social economic status and being able to have those choices that, you know, it can bring, but, you know, it is that sense of contribution, significance, you know, the, those values that are you know more subjective. It's just so important to the, our human experience. And, you know, but, you know, and I come from the public health field and, and, and it, we see this in health outcomes, you know, that, you know, where, where, you know, employment is seen what they call as a social determinant of health. So like mm -hmm. it, it, it can be more impactful to, to, to people living longer quality of life, you know, uh, than, you know, access to quality health care. And not in a lot of people right. see employment as like, you know, being which it is access to health care in many ways, you know, because it can come with the job. But it, it just, you know, in and of itself, you know, can contribute to, to people's longevity and you know, resiliency to chronic disease as much as almost everything else. So that's right. And I think, and I think even like you look at people these days who are retiring from their traditional job, their, mm -hmm. their income-based job, a lot of them are not just retiring and, and, and sitting at home anymore. They're, they're going out and they're volunteering or they're getting other jobs. They, because, because we've recognized, I think as we've gotten more advanced with science, right understand the importance of being a part of something, a part of a community contributing right. yeah. that. I think, I think that's the larger mission or larger uh, insight to be gained from this is that there's some, there's some level of uh, interconnectedness that right. you're a part of where being isolated, being at home all the time and not being able to, to be uh, contributing has the, the more negative correlation. Right. Uh, to Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, I think that's very important for, for us to be giving and serving and, and feeling value, you know, and being valuable, you know, within a community. So so you you brought up transportation disadvantage. I think you are also director of that as well. Is that right? Yes. Man. So um tell tell us what that program the, is and who it serves. You don't sure. Yeah. So um the program is a state, it's a state agency 
we are we are 100 funded by the by the state. Uh, a lot of the funding comes from your license tags mm-hmm. uh, that get renewed. Um, a portion of the of those proceeds go to our trust fund, and then uh, it allocates uh, fund this funding to all the 67 counties of the state to deliver um, those door to door paratransit right. services. Right. Um, so I got on the program. Uh, from what I mentioned earlier, I was on, appointed to the commission back in 09, and I served on that board uh, through 2016. Wow. Then I left and went into, uh, uh, I worked in different areas between the governor's office and, and this, where I'm at now. So uh, in about 2019, uh, I got a call from the executive director uh, saying that he was retiring uh, from this position as, as executive director and encouraged me to consider applying. So I did. And, um, and I, it's, I said, it's, it's interesting because this organization was what got me my entryway into, um, state government. Right. And it was like fate would have it that now I'm in, in Full circle. the job that I ultimately, I think wanted, I didn't know if necessarily it was going to be this job, but right. I, I always wanted to be in a position where I uh, could be sort of an executive role. Um, right. That just was where my I felt like my talents were going towards, but wasn't sure where that was going to lead. Um, so our organization is, uh, we're based in Tallahassee. We have um, 13 uh, staff members and uh, we have, uh, uh, like I said, a state program that funds all these different services. So I get to go around the state and, uh, see some of the innovative services that are going on right. uh, to serve this population. We've seen a lot the last few years in uh, looking at on demand, you know, with uh, like the Uber and Lyft model, sure. trying to incorporate yeah. that into our our service model. Um, and we were able to su- also look at creative ways of addressing the pandemic, you know, when the services right. were down, we still had to figure out ways yeah. to troubleshoot that. So it's been yeah. a it's been a very eventful few years to be. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and somebody that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't have the visual acuity to drive and, you know, certainly public transportation is a very uh, important piece of being independent and included in the community. And we serve a 16 County catchment area, in North central Florida, very rural. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we recognize we serve a lot of people that are relying on, you know, the TD services, and uh, it's just so important, you know, that people have access to this uh, this service. And and you're right, I remember it in the pandemic to really figure out how to do this, how to do this well. Um, I, re- I remember, um, I think we were starting to reach out to to your, your department there when we were, um, during the pandemic, looking to get food and other essential supplies, mm-hmm. PPE, to people in their homes where they lived. And, and, and since you all serve people, um, you know, and go door to door to their homes, understanding where people were to give them the access other people had who had transportation to get you know public distribution to the food or PPE and all this other kind of stuff was a very important piece of us being able to to make sure people had access, you know, to this. That's right. Yeah, it was a lot of the relationship networking because um, Jane uh, yeah. had reached out to us uh, right when that started, and and we were able to connect. Right. Our, our providers with with the CILs to support. It was them. awesome. Yeah, we, we were able to serve a lot through the through that connection and that collaboration. 
so you you have a lot of experience in positions of leadership. What what are some lessons in leadership that you've learned along the way? Oh, that's a that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I'm taking notes because I'm learning. <laughs> well, for me, in my my experiences, I think it starts with purpose. You have to have a purpose. Uh, right. You can't just leadership is not a position. Don't get it confused with the position title. You can be right. you can Good be one. a leader and right. not be technically a director or CEO or right. there's uh there's people, I mean, in my organization who don't have that title, but I, I rely upon them for my decision making. And if it wasn't for them, I would be in big trouble. Right. Uh, in terms of in terms of having their wisdom. And I consider them to be equally as valuable in the decision-making process. So in mm -hmm. leadership, as a leadership role. So I think having a purpose, having a, a, a you know, starting with your why, mm -hmm. what, where do you, where do you want to take uh, a program, an organization, a group of people, a service, a product, whatever it is that you're overseeing, where do you want to take it? For me, it's, it's well, I think what gets me is that systems change, culture change, especially in government, is really hard. Right. Um, and you have to be willing to put in a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of thought to to try to move that needle. Um, so I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction, more than just a paycheck. Uh, for me, is is the the ability to see uh, progress made and improving a service or a culture as a leader. So those were some lessons I've learned. Um, I think in terms of in terms of the adversity side of things, I found a lot of times being I still consider myself pretty young. <laughs> I'm in my late 30s now, but um I started this in a pretty young age in, in my mid-20s. I found youth to be both my greatest asset and Sometimes my greatest uh, struggle because I didn't know a lot, which in some ways worked in my to my favor because I didn't have as many preconceived ideas. I was willing to challenge it, um, but you will find that you know in a lot of it doesn't matter whether it's government or in business. There's politics, and you're going to have uh, certain people in positions that are going to you know try to belittle you or try to uh, sure. w you aside, right and there's somewhat of an art to figuring out how to push through that. Right. Um, and sometimes that's going to cause rifts and threats uh, to people's security. Um, and so I think like it's important also not to give up. Um, sometimes you may have to, to compromise or go about addressing a problem in a different way or approach, approaching it. But um, at the end of the day, if your call, your purpose is to, figure out a solution to a problem as a leader, you have to be willing to also push through the, uh, the you know, going against the grain to get right. there. Wow. You gave an excellent answer. I love this. Start with why your purpose system change takes a long time to write culture and uh, those kind of things. But, you know, one, one, one area you landed on there and kind of ended on, I, I find is the thing that separates like, you know, great or even good leaders to this phenomenal, you know, legendary is that that ability to 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 navigate the inevitable target that'll be on a leader's back or, you know, these threats, the security and those kind of things. And like, how do people do that? 
yeah, and, and still maintain some kind of semblance of grace <laughs> and humility and uh, mm -hmm. not becoming a, um, uh, you know, kind of a disgruntled or, or, or mean or bad person, you know, through it, you know, to, to, yeah. be, able to, to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think another uh, point to add to that is, is um, remember, number one, uh, remember that it takes a team. Uh, right. So, you know, it, you can be you could be the most intelligent, genius, articulate person, but if you don't have other, what is the expression? If you don't have people following, you're not leading. You're just taking a walk. Taking a walk, yeah. I think John Maxwell um, said that. Yeah. Right. So I think it's important that you have to have. Um, a group of people that are invested in mm -hmm. it's, it's about the collective uh, mission of what you're right. trying to accomplish. Uh, and then I'm reading a book right now uh, called extreme ownership. Ah, Jocko. Have you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, I Uber driver actually recommended it. And I always find when I get a random person to recommend something, I try to remember it. Cause I feel like it's the universe telling me something. Sure. Uh, and I I found with that book it's interesting. It's like also owning right. from your mistakes. You know, uh, right. we're going we're human beings and we're going to make mistakes. And I've I've got a, a laundry list of my own man um, that Thank I've you. had to. You know, it's not fun to go through that when you when you realize it. But at the same time, that's how you grow. Yes. Um, you know, some mistakes you don't want to repeat and you can have detrimental effects. I'm not saying like. You should be careless, but you should take stock that when you when you have those lessons, that you 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 get humility from it. It helps yeah. you to become even more effective going into the your next uh, adventure, your next mission or goal. Yeah, I think with uh, humility, I I think with the old school uh, way of leadership is presented to me, it was like got to have this you know um, character share of being perfect, always right, knowing the answer. Um, where, whereas like, yeah, you're right. It takes a team. So we don't have all the answers. Um, you know, that it's not a position necessarily of authority. It can be anyone that helps to elevate somebody and allow them to be a better person. I love this sense of extreme ownership or if we're in a difficult situation or there's a problem or there's an issue, well, that's kind of on us, no matter like how we might like want to like, you know, it prevents us from complaining and blaming and have more, you know, agency perhaps and being able to do that. I, I, I love all this. So look, I, I want to respect time. I, I could do this all day with you. <laughs> you're, you're amazing. Um, what, Thank what, you. One of the um, common questions that we ask everybody, um, uh, and I'd be interested to get your take on it. I think like you might have gleamed around it a little bit already in this episode um, is what does the independent life or living independently uh, mean to you? Uh, empowerment. Um, that's the first word that comes to my mind. Right. Um, a sense of a sense of worth, self worth, and you know, wow. a worth to the to the community that you're serving. Right. Um, you know, fulfillment. Uh, meaning a sense of like you know that that there's a right there's something there's something more than just than just going to work um uh, having a house uh you know having a having a social status there's something about um enrichment of right. relationships and and um that i think is what 
I think independence is kind of like you you can't do all you can't have all those benefits if you don't have some form of of independence. So I think right. it's the means to achieving all of those. That's a deep answer. I really like it. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm happy that empowerment jumps out to you. That's in our one of our center's mission statements: empower people with disabilities. But I really like your your word fulfillment that you brought in there. I find that you know that's where when you were talking about contribution, significance, uh, you know, having those kind of things and, and giving back service, say, uh, would for me be a part of fulfillment. But there, there there's some you know, areas of like, you know, people want to be happy. Um, and and I, I hear some experts saying that's probably the wrong word. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's probably more fulfillment, you know, being fulfilled. That's right. You know, it, it's more of a, a deeper, enduring, you know, I think essence of what maybe people mean when they say, I want to be happy. It's really happiness can be fleeting. And so conditional on social, you know, uh, emotional things being in play, but fulfillment can be one of those kind of like deeper undergirding, you know, uh, foundational things that can really, I think be what I would connect more to what it means to have a independent or, or, you know, kind of a high quality of life. I think it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about this the other day. I saw some scrolling through uh, my YouTube feeds and there was a thumbnail. It's it's about happiness is not a right. And I I didn't listen to the video, but I was kind of, it made me think about it. And I thought, well, in the, you know, Declaration of Independence, it's uh, we're we're declaring that we have uh, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. And I kind of thought about it like, well, happiness is not like just a, a one single thing. It's a it's a journey. It's a process. Right. Um, and so I think uh, I think that's the way to maybe look at fulfillment is that you're you're in that pursuit. But it's it's there's a sense of constant. It's not just going to be like I'm just happy because I got some material Right. Outcome. Yeah. I think the way that superficially I was like perceiving happiness for the longest time was like merriment, you know, kind of like, yeah. like, I don't know, like, a, you know, so, so some very hedonistic pleasure maybe, or like, you know, geez, you know, binge watching TV and eating food that isn't healthy for me can make me happy in the moment, but I'm not fulfilled. You know, uh, we're, we're at the end of a long day working very hard, maybe going through some frustrations, you know, maybe they're still lingering a little, but, you know, you know, just a good, like they, I think fulfillment was described to me too, as one time as like, you know, as a, as a, a, you know, a a tired, you know, person's head on a pillow at the end of a long day of being, you know, a valuable contributing person, you know, to, to, in the day to someone or somebody or something, you know, throughout, throughout that. We might be exhausted, tired, fatigued, but we're fulfilled. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Well, David, you know, the way to connect with you and and get our orbits to line up was well worth it. I look forward to having more discussions with you. I, I, yeah. I, I'm confident that this won't be the last. So I'm just very grateful for you taking the time. I want to acknowledge you as a, you know, somebody that, you know, certainly Jane speaks in very high, high regards of. So she's somebody that I look to, up to in my book. And so when she you know, has a nod towards somebody. I, I know there's someone I want to connect with, but uh, thank you for being a good role model and example to me, you know, as being a, what a leader is and perseverance and and everything that you were able to share here. Uh, you know, I see you being a, 
you know, you talk about thirties. Um, you know, geez, that's the age Ryan Holiday. You brought him up earlier. Is that yeah. uh, he? He's he's done quite a bit in his uh his uh thirty years on this planet as you have. So I look forward to seeing what else you have to uh, to bring humanity here. So thank you, thank you so much well, for taking no, th the time. Thank you for not just inviting me, but for what you're doing. I I love the uh, the podcast world. Is um it's got a lot of uh right. potential to bringing these rich deep conversations. Right. Um, so I, I appreciate you doing what you're doing, not just for, you know, independent living as a mission, but creating this space for these conversations right. to happen. So, um, and yes, I will I'll be happy to, uh, continue the conversation soon. Uh, you're right. living, you're in, uh, Gainesville, right? Yes, sir. Yes, we are in Gainesville. Well, next time I'm in Gainesville, I'll, uh, cause that's close to my hometown in, in Jacksonville. So right. I might find myself out there. Um, Stones throw away. Yeah, please yeah. come on by. It would be an honor to have you over here, show you the center and uh, uh, what a real college campus looks like. Uh, I won't wear my FSU shirt though. I'll try, not, <laughs> I'll try not to wear a target on my back here. <laughs> well, thank you, David. I certainly appreciate you and your time. And until next time, onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352 378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.